From the pinnacle of the media landscape, this is Market Edge. Join your host, Larry Weber, as he discovers the answers from analysts, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are preparing the blueprints for the future of marketing. Hear from those who are taking us to a new age of social media, e-communities, and the blogosphere. blogosphere. Now, please welcome your host of Market Edge, Larry Weber. Hi, and welcome to Market Edge. I'm your host, Larry Weber, chairman of W2 Group, a global marketing services ecosystem organized to help chief marketing officers in their new role as builders of communities and content aggregators. Today, I'll be talking about the future of global connectivity with Emily Nagel-Green, president and CEO of Yankee Group, a leading technology and research consulting firm that analyzes the impact of global connectivity on enterprises and consumers. Emily is a communications technology and research veteran, and her tech sector experience includes a variety of engineering and marketing leadership roles in computer-generated special effects, broadband communications, and video services. Before joining the famous Yankee Group, Green was the CEO of Cambridge Energy Research Associates, the preeminent research and consulting firm in the energy sector, and led its sale in 2004 to IHS Energy. Previously, Emily served for nine years in leadership roles with the IT advisory firm Forrester Research, helping the company grow from a privately held boutique to a publicly traded market leader. Emily is also the president of MyTex, the Massachusetts Innovation Technology Exchange, New England's premier trade association for digital technology, marketing, and media professionals. Welcome to Market Edge, Emily. Hi, Larry. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I've been traveling a lot, but uh, I hear you have too, so it's just uh, making a living in these tough economic times, you know. Absolutely. We have to stay moving. <laughs> hey, uh the Yankee Group, you know, been around 40 years. Um, we all sort of have an idea of what you guys do, but could you give us a little bit about what the daily routine of people at the Yankee Group are doing? Yeah, we're um, in 40 years. We've been focused, uh, among other things, on uh, communications technology evolution. What what what's happening and and uh, how to how to benefit from that. And uh, right now, we're focused on what we call the connectivity revolution, moving, moving to, to uh, a state of ubiquitous digital connectivity, ultimately, that we call anywhere. So uh, what, what's a day in the life at Yankee Group? We, uh, we talk to consumers and enterprises about their connectivity behaviors and their, their needs, and we uh, synthesize that and add our own um, uh, magic sauce to, to try to predict the future of what's, what's happening to connectivity technology and how that will transform our, our world over the next uh, five, ten years. We, um, we write research. We talk a lot with clients, including um, helping them figure out how to adapt their plans based on what's going on in the economy. We, uh, we run conferences. Um, we do radio interviews. We do all kinds of fun things on any given day. Hey, you know, you operate on this concept uh, that I've heard you talk about, Anywhere Connectivity Revolution. What is Anywhere in your mind, and what is the Anywhere tipping point for any sort of region of the world? Well, anywhere is the name that Yankee Group has given to the the state of ubiquitous digital connectivity, which is when a pervasive 
high-capacity, intelligent network fabric ultimately reaches all the people in the world and all the things that can benefit from it. It's a, it's a future state that we're not at yet, but it's our vision for what's likely to evolve. And as that happens, um, we're fascinated by the potential transformations that will bring to, to society, to, to businesses and consumers. The tipping point, borrowing from uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, borrowing or stealing, I'm not sure, <laughs> um, it, we, we adapted to, to a measure that we have called the Anywhere Index, which is trying to assess the rate at which this connectivity revolution reaches various parts of the world. The tipping point is the point where the proportion of broadband lines, whether those are wired or wireless lines, starts to match a region's population so that there's at least one broadband line for every person in a region. And when, when that tipping point happens, that's when we think we'll see the most transformational impacts from, from uh, a pervasive network. Which, uh, you know, which regions of the world right now, you know, are, are maybe close to that tipping point? You know, as, as both of us travel or anyone travels, you know, it was easy to see when I was doing my preliminary work on mobile marketing that Europe was way ahead of uh, the U.S. and even Asia. But then just coming back from China, where people have the average of two or three phones individually, you have quite a different sort of set of things. Um, tell us a little bit on who's leading, where the U.S. might be in this whole pack, and, uh, and, and sort of when the U.S. might you know, uh, lead again in this category. Well, it's, it's true. This is a global revolution, but what's happening on the, on the local front is very different from, from place to place. And by merging um, a, a measure of both wired broadband and wireless or mobile broadband, you get some very interesting results. Uh, when you look at it on a regional level, Western Europe is by far the, the leader. Overall, the region has about two broadband lines for every three people. So a ratio of about 65%. And that comes both from the really advanced deployment of mobile broadband, 3G networks, and also some pretty aggressive fiber rollouts at the national level in places like Sweden and France. So North America as a region and the U.S. as a nation have roughly the same uh, anywhere index, which, which is to say they have about one broadband line for every two members of the population, or about 50% roughly. And that's because we have less um, 3G mobile broadband deployments, and in Canada a lot less uh, fixed uh, broadband uh, connectivity. Asia is the, the lagging region of, of the three, and, and that's kind of hard. It's kind of unfair to say because, as you know, um, Asia is hardly a, a coherent, homogeneous region. It, it includes regions with very little connectivity like Malaysia and Indonesia and then other uh, national-level markets with extremely advanced broadband uh, infrastructure and applications like Japan and South Korea. Yeah. And... Um... Is it a year? Is it a two years before you know the U.S. is up to that sort of Western Europe, Northern uh, Europe uh, level, or is it a matter of months? Well, it's a couple of years at least, and um, depending on how certain um, parts of the world react to the economic crisis, it, it, it could be even that kind of progress could be at risk. Our current outlook is that the first countries will hit at a national level that that tipping point, that one to one ratio of broadband to people next year. We our outlook has uh, Sweden and Italy getting there first, and then in 2010, a lot of other Western European countries. And right now, our outlook is that U.S. doesn't reach that same level of broadband deployment until 2012. Hmm. Um, 
You know, I want to talk a little bit about the role in America, especially of the carriers. Um, you know, my audience knows I'm old enough to go back to the beginning of the PC revolution, where a lot of the hardware vendors at the time thought they were going to really own the industry, and all of a sudden these software companies, Microsoft, Lotus, etc., sort of popped up and said, no, there's a different story about control of this industry. And I can't help but remember that as I look at some of the challenges facing the carriers. What's your take on, uh, on that situation? Well, you, you, it's the perfect analogy that you, that you presented because, um, as, as we were talking earlier, termites start to chew a house from the foundation upward. And, and what you're really talking about is commoditization. The reason the, the PC uh, manufacturers don't own the PC space any longer is that we evolved to a relatively standardized PC platform. And once that became the case, the real innovation opportunities were built on top of the PC at the software level. And what's happening in the network market is, is completely analogous. We had siloed, proprietary, closed communications networks that could, you could only put something on them um, if it was something that had been built, designed, authorized, deployed by the phone company themselves, and they had total control over that. As, as we move to a common network platform, which is essentially the IP protocol, um, they have many, many more competitors for delivering um, services to people, and uh, there are many uh, people that want to deliver services that can use the network just right on top of the network, like uh, Google and Microsoft. So they might, I mean, they may have an opportunity to continue to lead us through this, but it, they don't, it doesn't belong to them anymore. They don't own it. They have to earn it. You know, if you would have told me five years ago that names like Apple, uh, Google, Microsoft would be leading in a way the, <laughs> this, as you call it, anywhere revolution, you know, what, what's your take on that? And, and why have they really emerged as the innovators in this space? Well, no, I, I probably wouldn't have believed it unless in the in a you know, very long odds here I would have forced myself to think as as you suggest what what happened in the PC space. Um, but but their entrance is great for all of us because it's forcing everyone to raise their game. That's what competition does, and I, I love the fact that that they're in the mix, they're messing around and forcing um, the carriers to take the expertise they have and the funds that they have and be more aggressive at at, at building out this anywhere network for us. So I think uh, it's a great thing for everyone. But, you know, the introduction of the iPhone taught both um, the carriers and handset manufacturers what people really want from the device, what they want from the experience. And uh, we're starting to see a lot of um, um, infection of other handsets, you know, with the same kind of standards for user interface and simplicity. And I, I think that's a, that's a brilliant gift that they've given us in a sense. Yeah, and you know what? I'm sure you guys comment on this all the time, but you, you, you know, are interviewing consumers all the time, and it really is, isn't it? At the end of the day, they take service for granted. That just should be very good, and it's experience that changes who they give their allegiance to. That's absolutely right, and and uh, it's. I think it's going to be a very interesting story to watch unfold. Uh, what what consumers think of as a reasonable brand for giving them connectivity experiences. You see the early returns on the Amazon Kindle, which is their um, right. e-book device. That, that experience, that the connectivity that, that makes the e-book so useful is actually supplied to consumers through Sprint. But I would bet you most consumers are completely unaware of that. 
Right. And uh, Sprint, Sprint doesn't need to care about that. But I talked to a carrier the other day that said we would never do that. We would never subordinate our brand to the consumer. The question is, would I, would I, think, of, would I think of a carrier first when I think about uh, buying a, a connected book? No, I think about somebody who understands my appetite for books and, and, right. uh, and the reading experience. I think of them before I would think of a carrier. So it may be that, you know, Barnes & Noble has a better opportunity to brand a digital experience if it has to do with literature yeah. than, uh, than a connectivity provider does. Well, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, I was telling somebody the other day uh, that, you know, if you're, if you're mad at Amazon uh, for some reason, they got your order wrong or stuff, you don't pick up the phone or you don't send an email to Comcast uh, or to, uh, you know, whoever your provider of the Internet service is. You, you get right to Amazon. And I would think the same thing is going to happen in, uh, in the broadband, you know, uh, you know mobile world. Yeah, it's it's a it's a big challenge for the carriers. You know, some of them will probably rise to the occasion, but but broadly, they have to move from being service providers to experience providers, and experiences are diverging. Are what kind of experiences are we talking about? Financial, retail, uh, media, and how many carriers are going to be able to acquire the skills and the facility with with all kinds of new business models to successfully anticipate and and deliver the kinds of experiences I want as a consumer. That's, that's going to be a tough job. The last question on the carrier stuff. Um, you know, like a lot of industries, you know, it get, things get consolidated and they cross uh, boundaries. Uh, that hasn't quite happened in this industry yet. But could you see a, a, a future that, you know, maybe a British telecom is, is a global, you know, offer, uh, has a global offering that competes with the Google or a, a Verizon Wireless, that it's, it's less about the countries that we're in? Or are we just so regulatory heavy that, that that's just a pipe dream for this industry? Oh, I don't think it's a pipe dream. I think it's inevitable. And I think that the, the, if you're looking for analogs on which to base your, your analysis, you probably want to look at the energy sector. I mean, Royal Dutch Petroleum, for instance, is a global concern. As, as things become commoditized, scale becomes the, the major factor in an economic um, delivery of the experience. And already today in, in Western Europe, many of the incumbent phone companies, BT, KPN in the Netherlands, Telefonica in Spain, they've already bought up or taken partial stakes in a lot of other carriers. The remaining impediments to that uh, becoming more pervasive are the regulatory environment, as you mentioned. But that that's a lagging situation. Regulation always trails um, innovation in an economy. And you see uh, regulation in the U.S. around uh, not allowing the two... Um, uh, satellite radio networks to merge. They they finally have been convinced that the sources of competition for the two satellite radio networks, Sirius and XM, are external to those two um, to those two uh, companies, and they they allowed them to consolidate. And I think ultimately, probably slowly, particularly in the case of Western Europe, you will see regulation begin to allow the 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 uh, more rapid consolidation of of uh, network providers. Um. Emily Green, we're going to take a short commercial break right now. Audience, do stand by because we'll be right back with this fascinating conversation with Yankee Group's Emily Green and more from Market Edge. Market Edge will continue in just a moment. When it comes to finding the right customers with the right keywords, all you have to remember is ABC Search. ABC Search is the world's largest privately held pay-per-click network 
giving advertisers the best pay-per-click traffic. With over 6 billion searches a month and industry-leading protection using ClickShield, their patent-pending fraud identification software, you can trust ABC Search to deliver the best possible traffic. When thinking about PPC and publisher solutions, all you need to remember is ABC Search. Quality partners, quality search. ABCSearch.com. Hey, have you got that number for Jerry's Pizza? Look it up on LocalPages.com. LocalPages.com. Well, what if I wanted a business number in Miami? LocalPages.com. Can people find your business online? Be seen with LocalPages.com on every local listing in all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, Amazon, and Ask. With over 6 billion quality searches a month and bids starting as low as one cent, get connected with local consumers at the exact moment that they're looking for you. San Francisco, Green Bay, London. I told you. LocalPages.com. List your business on LocalPages.com now and get $100 in free local advertising. LocalPages.com, bringing your neighborhood to you. How do you choose the right affiliate network to partner with? The answer is simple. MarketHealth.com, where health and wealth connect. Established in 1998 and formerly known as Joe Bucks, the MarketHealth.com affiliate network allows you to market and promote the world's leading health and beauty offers on the net. Start making recurring income and the highest payouts in our industry. Choose from over 50 of the hottest selling offers ranging from herbal supplements, skincare, vitamins, beauty products, weight loss, and much more. Sign up for free at MarketHealth.com and start making money today. Affiliate marketing is changing rapidly. Stay ahead of the trends with Affiliate Marketing Insider. Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Affiliate Marketing Channel. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. From the pinnacle of the marketing landscape, we now return to Market Edge. Once again, here's your host, Larry Weber. Welcome back to Market Edge. This is your host, Larry Weber, and I'm here today with the president and CEO of the famed Yankee Group, Emily Green, talking about global connectivity change. Hey, Emily, just to switch topics a little bit, you know, the, the Obama administration has talked about installing a national chief technology officer. What recommendations do you have for the administration in this regard? I'll just give a caveat that when I advised our Governor Deval Patrick on technology transition, I was the only one that was talking about experience and applications, and we had six IT guys that were only worried about the back room. And I understand that's real important, but I just give that as sort of some context when you answer the question about Obama's team saying there should be a chief technology officer of the United States. Well, I think it's a brilliant idea, as long as it has some, some teeth. I hope it's, it, it's not a toothless appointment, and, and, and uh, you know, there's no signs yet that it, that it is. I think it's a brilliant idea, and I guess my own thinking about what that person should do would be based on the incredible economic benefits the nation saw when we built out the national highway infrastructure in the 50s and the 60s. We, we wouldn't be the country we are today if we didn't have the national highway infrastructure, and you can see the parallel in, in China's announcement over the last couple of days that they're going to invest in their own highway infrastructure. So I would say that the job of a, of a U.S. CTO would be to build out our national broadband infrastructure. You know, we are we are moving away from being a manufacturing economy as a nation, uh, and so we are less focused on how efficiently to to uh, ship things from one place to the next. We're moving to a service economy. So, you know, help us evolve a national broadband infrastructure that um, will give us and give everybody in the economy a chance to participate in that service economy. 
Is there any organization that you know of? You know, I can't think of it right now. You know, like, is there an association? Like, I mean, we have association of associations, but in this country, but I mean, is there a, a group that that has all these broadband providers or or geniuses from the Cisco's to the to the uh, the Verizon wirelesses? Is there a group that that gets together, even though they're competitive, to to talk about this? There are a couple. There's the uh, USTA, U.S. Telecommunications Association. There's the TIA, Telecommunications Industry Association. There's CTAM, which is the Cable Telecommunications Association. They tend to focus uh, quite a bit on um, uh, policymaking at, at the government level, but they, they tend, as many associations uh, are to be a little bit protectionist. So uh, what you will see today is that a number of these associations are taken up with with uh, competitive issues like uh, net neutrality. You know whether or not the government should intervene in in uh, how network uh, providers operate the capacity in their networks. But I'd love to see those organizations, to the extent that Yankee Group has some influence, I'd love to see them band together on something that would really be about the greater good, which is how can we. Um, come up with the missing pieces nationally to create the, the the infrastructure we need. You know, back in the back in the 40s and 50s there was a fund set aside at the government level for making sure that telephone service reached the most rural citizens of the United States and that it was the money that was paid out to phone companies because otherwise providing them with phone service wasn't economic. And I think we need something similar to make sure that broadband gets out to the same uh, get get to those same people either wireless or wired one way or the other. And beyond that, I think it's about making sure people have the means to use the network. What What are the access devices? You know, the the um, uh, the uh, PC initiative that I know you've been involved with, Larry. The um, um, now I've forgotten the name of Nick, Nicholas Negroponte's. Uh, oh yeah, the one laptop per child. Yep. One laptop per child. I mean, they're they're rightly focused on third world opportunities, but we have a lot of people in the U.S. that could benefit from having access to a broadband network. So, you know, I would I would say the job of the CTO is to come up with some sort of New Deal type programs to build the infrastructure and to give people the means and the education to take advantage of it. And there's so much innovation. You know, you mentioned uh, Nicholas's uh, Negroponte's work. You know, their their uh, take on this thing called a mesh network that doesn't even use the internet um, for more local communications is fascinating. So, the the idea that it's not just you know, I mean, I mean, I like your analogy of of of, of streets and, and infrastructure, but there also has got to be Emily a role of of innovation, right? Around you know, really anticipating the way people communicate with one another, what they're going to need, uh, you know, et cetera. Yeah, I guess, and there is some history of the government in supporting innovation, and we probably wouldn't have the Internet if it weren't for um, the uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency funding the creation of its of its predecessor some time ago. But I, broadly, I think private the private sector is the best source of innovation, and so the government needs, needs to look at ways to, you know, take obstacles out of the way, and one of those is the regulatory environment. One thing that's really exciting that's happening in February next year is the completion of the nation's move to digital television, and once that happens, there's wireless spectrum that's going to be returned that can be reused for something else that had been consumed with transmitting analog TV signals, and so the government has a chance to make sure that we do something with that wireless spectrum that really helps the economy over the long term. 
Let me ask you two more technical questions. More technical questions, since you're the engineer, I'm not Emily. Uh, for, for our for our listeners here, but you know, I was in Brazil earlier this year, and one of the things some of the cabinet people were telling me is they see it as an advantage in in, in economies like theirs that don't have an older infrastructure, uh, you know, in in connectivity that they can sort of leapfrog. Is is that true? I mean, I understand how that's true for them and other third world or 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 emerging economies, but does that put sort of the uh, the proverbial uh, chain around the U.S.'s ankle because we have an older infrastructure, or it, does that matter? Uh, no, it's very true. It's it, it's very true that that uh, regions of the world that weren't able, for whatever reason, to deploy older technologies have a an essentially a green field. And one of the challenges of migrating technology is is how do you bring uh, the installed base of anything along with you, whether it's software or hardware or networks. And so, uh, regions that are essentially free of telecommunications infrastructure can install in what we call a green field basis, state of the art. Um, so-called fourth-generation wireless networks that are, are marvelously capable, whereas regions of the of the world that are still sort of evolving to 3G have a harder time making the economic leap into um, you know a more advanced technologies, and so it does does uh, create a catch-up opportunity for for other regions of the world, which I think just adds to the imperative we have of not standing in one place here and of saying that the U.S. led the commercialization of the internet, but let's not uh, sit on our laurels. Let's make sure that we're continuing to accelerate our own adoption of um, more advanced network technology. Couldn't agree more. Our, our, my, my last sort of techie question is just sort of an observation I had when I took my family um, on a, a trip out, out of the country this year, and my two older teenagers were still taking, you know, uh, still pictures and sending them back to their friends via Facebook, uh, et cetera. But my younger one never takes a still picture. He's just doing video all the time and laughing at himself and editing and sending that and watching YouTube. And, you know, he's far more into what I would call a rich media uh, frame of mind. What kind of technology? Technology is really needed because if, if you believe what I'm going to say, which I think rich media is going to be the future of the, the web and, and, and in general communication, so it's going to be a lot of, of you, know, you know, just video and, uh, and, again, rich communications fodder, what kind of t- complex technology hurdles do we have to face to make sure that all flows easily? Well, you're absolutely right. There, there, there's no getting the broadband, uh, the bandwidth genie back into the bottle. We will never want less uh, network capacity than we when we than we do today. And in fact, it's growing by orders of magnitude on, on the scale of months and years. The the expansion of demand on networks around the world is almost unimaginable. It's it's quite rapid, and I and it's impossible for us to imagine now, as as old as you and I are, you know what what our kids' kids will want to do with the network beyond video. I always talk about we have to plan for four dimensional smellovision. I, I don't know what four-dimensional smell-o-vision is, but, you know, somebody's going to come along and invent it, and we're going to not be able to imagine how we lived our lives without it. And uh, that means that the networks not only have to be constantly focused on um, adding capacity in, in dramatic ways, but in figuring out how to steer that traffic around the network in very intelligent ways. And so I think... You know, I'm, I'm definitely exposing my geeky side here. One of the really interesting things over the next couple of years is how the networks around the world will involve 
evolve in intelligence, how they'll get smarter about uh, managing that capacity and understanding what I'm doing and, and uh, reacting and adapting appropriately. A couple of quick questions, just uh, since a lot of our uh, listeners are marketers. Um, just Yankee Group's take on sort of where mobile advertising and advertising networks and sort of uh, maybe even like local search, uh, um, you know, what's your take on its growth, where it is now, does it have a bright future, et cetera? Yeah, uh, we're very bullish on mobile advertising. It, it has to evolve. It doesn't have all the measures and metrics that, that uh, advertisers need to be efficient at, at, at doing advertising, and we have to wrest some of the controls of doing it from the carriers who want to hang on to uh, a lot of the opportunity because they see it as a very necessary incremental revenue stream for their businesses. But I think it will evolve for a couple of reasons. One is that very that very imperative carriers really need supplemental revenue because the economics of providing network access are changing and they're not going to be able to get the full um, price of their service delivery back from consumers. They're going to have to start to develop these other revenue streams. But the other reason is that these will become the, the uh, prominent ways in which we interact with the world. I think uh, the... For many consumers already, it is the way they interact with the world. We see a lot of uh, consumers in, in, in the U.S. and elsewhere for which the mobile handset is their Internet access device, period. But even for those of us who have other platforms, it's going to become the one that uh, is our preferred platform. So it's going to be the, the most dependable way to reach us. Um, so it has to evolve in, in how well it can target me. I, I don't want to be uh, pursued on my personal device for things that are really irrelevant to me. But as the tools have emerged to figure out exactly who I am and where I am and, and what I will welcome and what I will not welcome, it will be an extremely valuable asset. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's going to, I think all that stuff will take a lot shorter time to sort out than Internet advertising did. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it will accelerate, particularly in the next couple of years as uh, consumers feel the pinch on uh, spending in the household and they start to scrutinize the bills they get every month. One of the things they're likely to do is look at their communications bill and try to uh, separate out some of the services they get and look for less expensive ways. And so the people that uh, are, are aggressive about uh, creating a, a, a value-based connectivity offer to consumers that says, uh, hey, you can mitigate some of the costs of the device that you regard as essential to your life by uh, being willing to accept uh, appropriate and thoughtfully presented uh, marketing opportunities. I think there will be a very strong response to that. Hey, Emily, I can't believe how fast this time's been going, but we only really have time for about one more question. And I... I, I I have to skip over some that I wanted to ask you and just get to really the sort of the big world question, which is, you know, what is your and Yankee Group's vision of the future of mobile? And maybe you could start with some of the takeaways from your recent mobile Internet world that uh, was a resounding success uh, in, in Boston a few weeks back. And, you know, and maybe touch on some categories. I mean, I heard everything about from local search to gaming to, um, you know, uh, video conference to uh, to uh, mobile com commerce. Uh, so, I mean, go anywhere you want, Emily Green, but it's uh, – tell our listeners about the, the future of mobile and, and maybe some <laughs> of the takeaways. 
Well, thanks for mentioning our event. It was a big success. We had about 2,400 people there overall, and, th- and thank you very much for your participation in that event as well. I sure. guess the first thing I would say is what is not the future of mobile, and, and I think for some years there was a, a conception that broadly held within the sector that the mobile uh, environment would evolve on a parallel but separate track from the Internet. It would, it would mirror the Internet. It would mimic the Internet, but it would be separate, and a, and a lot of the people who thought that were maybe within the the uh, mobile operator environment where they felt they, they were going to con- continue to control that uh, walled garden and, and be the arbiters of what would and would not come to consumers through the mobile platform. So what I think the future of mobile is, is, is uh, it will melt into the Internet. It will become a natural extension of the open uh, Internet that we have today, which is to say that it'll, it'll have a incredibly diverse choices, a few things that everybody will use that will, will garner our attention, like uh, you know, Google and, and, uh, and others, and then an incredible long tail, probably an even bigger and more dramatic long tail than the, than the um, fixed-line Internet has today. But it's, um, because it's that thing that we can't be without and because probably for the majority of the global population, it will be the only way they reach the Internet. Um, every experience that has manifested itself on the Internet today is, is going to move to the mobile environment appropriately. You see little printers and little projectors uh, now connecting uh, to mobile handsets, little game uh, joysticks and devices. Any experience that, that people have, have, have developed some satisfaction with in the fixed-line environment is moving to the mobile environment. What we see accelerating... Um, in some parts of the world are things like mobile payments because uh, for right. big populations of the world that, that have no relationship with a bank and have no uh, major uh, financial assets, the, the mobile handset will become their banking and payment device. Uh, but we see gaming, we see uh, interaction with media, which I think is another, we could do another whole conversation just on the topic of, of media because I don't want my media experience to be discreet and separate and siloed from my other media experience. I want it to be threaded and related to my, to my, uh, the media that I consume in my living room. So, so how will media evolve appropriately so that I can move back and forth from the plasma in my living room to the, um, you know, to my iPhone or my Google handset uh, on the road. Um, but as I say, it, it won't be parallel. It will be almost in, indistinguishable. It'll, it'll melt into the big Internet. Well, we're going to have to have a part two. I hope you'll come back, Emily, because I think we should have a whole show just dedicated on mobile and media. And I couldn't agree with you more about the integration that will really really uh, result in the formation of just one digital platform that is interchangeable with our real lives. And that's what everybody's going to be working about. So I want to thank Emily Green, President and CEO of Yankee Group. Please go to their website, uh, Google Yankee anytime, and so that you can find out the exciting things they're doing. And again, thanks, Emily, for being our guest on Market Edge today. Thank you, Larry. My pleasure. And thanks, everyone in the audience, for listening to today's Market Edge conversation. Tune in again next Tuesday at 12 Eastern Time in the United States, uh, or look at all our podcasts so you can listen when you want at webmasterradio.fm. This is Larry Weber for Market Edge. See you next time.